Thanks, guys. Well, this is, uh, like Nick said from the, the get-go from the beginning, this is a different day. This is a, a, an odd situation. Um, it, you might think that, uh, well, it's okay. You, you're at home, hopefully. Thank you for all of you who are, are uh, tuned in and, and watching this morning. Um, but it is uh, interesting to be here. There's how many of us? One, two, three, four, five of us here today. Uh, Jeff is helping with sound, of course, like he usually does. Eric is uh, here uh, as well. Um, I want to start off by uh, obviously saying that this is a, these are unusual days. I think for the most part, everyone um, uh, is uh, concerned. Um, I guess I could start off really by asking this question, and I'm not going to get a lot of response, but how are you doing? Um, that's a fair question, right? I do want to ask that question. How are you doing? I believe everyone in this church, everyone in Squamish, um, has been dealing with a number of personal issues the last little while. I mean, we as a church family, it feels like uh, the loss of dear Ava Grace is, is, is fresh on our minds. It's less than a week ago, it feels, that we were still dealing with that. And now we have this COVID-19 that has shown up, and things have changed. It's, it's really, it's a pandemic. It's looking like it's going to change our lives, at least in the short term. And we really, at this point, we have no idea what that's going to look like. So most of you are also aware that we sent out this as the only announcement, I guess, for today. Uh, during the week, which was our response, initially our plan was to gather and to clean things, which we've done, and to provide a space that would be safe for all of us to gather in. Reality is, as things came closer to this morning, we realized that, no, what we really need to do is we need to be wise and protect one another. And um, so that's why we're doing this online. It's, it's an amazing thing. I was saying to the, the, the large team that's here this morning that it's kind of interesting how God prepared this 18 months ago when we first decided to try Facebook Live and um, put our, our sermons up on YouTube. So we have it. We have this in place, and we can do this here today. So that's that's awesome. But I also want to share with you that this morning I was reading a post by a brother, a fellow in the United States, uh, Canadian actually, who's living in the U.S. and head of uh, the SEND missionary organization. I've quoted Jeff Christofferson many, many times as part of uh, our teachings in the church. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, Kingdom First, but he, he was specifically talking to church planters and really, I guess, to all of us this morning when he said this. He said, listen, as we know as a church, the church is not a building, a place, or an event. We say that, and yet today's the reality. Uh, and his thought was, and I want to share it with you, and I want you to pray about this and think about this. Is God giving this to us at this time, this circumstance, as the church in North America, as the Rock Church and other churches here in Squamish, uh, to um, make us think about how we gather, how we do church. What, what can we learn in this? I think, I think one of the things he said was is that what most people are doing is getting live streaming going, Facebook Live going like we're doing, and thinking that, okay, maybe in a few weeks or month at the worst, we can get back to usual scheduled programming like gathering in a building as a church. And his feedback, his comments were, well, it could be longer. Um, and so in that time, why don't we look at what we're doing and ask ourselves, how can we be the church in our neighborhood for our neighbors? And so we'll be talking about that a little bit more this week through emails and other things about, be, about looking out for one another, 
looking out for especially the elderly in our church and in our community, uh, groceries, shopping. Who, who knows what that might look like, how we can be the church. Now, finally, before I do read our text for today, and our text for today is found in the Gospel of Luke, I, I just want to make this comment. I, I did email the elders earlier this week, and I said, you know, maybe there are some people who are going to be watching this morning going, um, Pastor, um, why don't you give us a message for today, for this particular time, and for this subject, uh, a comfort message. I mean, I, I was thinking of that, and then as I sent that out to the elders, the, the majority of them said, no, let's, let's, uh, let's do what we were going to do. Let's stay with the Gospel of Luke. And, and my thought was, I, I was happy that they said that, not because that's what I had prepared, um, but honestly, it was because the Holy Spirit knew where we were, we were going to be here today in the Gospel of Luke. He knew that. Um, and so I, I want to encourage you. This is a very familiar parable. Uh, you've heard this before probably many times. I'm hoping to give you something fresh on it today. But I want to encourage you that even now, in this time, the Holy Spirit can and will speak to us if we are willing to listen, have ears to hear from this very parable. So we're in Luke chapter 15. If you've been following with us in the last few weeks, I am going to read this long parable one of the longest that Jesus gives to those men and women in that day and to us. It's uh, chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. So if you have your Bibles with you or on your phone, read along with me, and then I'm going to pray one more time, and then we will look at this amazing parable. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me and he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property, property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to his pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants. And he rose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. 
And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Yeah, Father. Father, this parable is about you. Your name comes up a lot in this parable. So, Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you that this parable is about you being that kind of father to your sons and daughters. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the one telling this parable to those who are listening to you. Lord, we pray that we would have ears to hear today because you are telling this parable to us as well. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray, give, give me strength, give me the words, give us ears to hear today. Holy Spirit, speak to us, encourage our hearts, comfort us, and use these words in this passage to literally transform our lives. Make us fresh and new again today, we pray, in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Sermon title for today is, here you go, The Lost Sons. I uh, hope to show you three things today. It's pretty obvious from the text, from the passage we've looked at. First of all, we're going to look at the lost younger son. Secondly, we're going to look at the lost elder son. And then thirdly, we're going to consider the loving father. I want to remind you of the first two verses that this chapter begins with. I'll put them on screen for you. Uh, they are the setup to this parable and the previous two that we've already looked at. It says in chapter, one, uh, chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, Now the tax collectors and sinners, here we go, were all drawing near to him, to Jesus, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, well, they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So we saw last week that this is the setup. This, these two verses are the setup, the comparison between these two groups of people, the tax collectors and sinners, the outcasts, and these Pharisees and scribes, to all three parables that Jesus taught and teaches. So last week we saw the first two, which were the... the, the the, the parable of the, the shepherd who goes lock, looking for the lost sheep, and then the other was the woman, right, who goes looking for her lost coin. And so we saw that there was this continuing contrast between those, thing that, those things that are lost and those things that are found. There was rejoicing. There was joy in heaven that increased when every sinner repented. And so Jesus now launches into this third, and by all accounts, most famous of his parables, one of my favorite for sure, in an attempt to reach, listen, reach these hard-hearted men, these Pharisees and these scribes. All, all three parables are really speaking to them, but also to the tax collectors and the sinners, the, the rest of us, right? And so 
many passages, many, pardon me, sermons have been preached on this. I'm sure you've heard many, many sermons on it. I know I have. I actually don't think, I went through my whole library, which, oh, my whole, like it's huge, right? Last 10 years of preaching, and, and uh, I, I've actually not preached on this parable. I preached on components of it, aspects of it, but not the actual parable. But I, but I have to, I mean, look in your Bibles. In the ESV, if you're using it today, there's a title there, right? The title is The Prodigal Son. That's the most common sermon title you're going to hear, and that's what gets preached all the time. It's right there in your Bibles, as I said. So full disclosure, though, I, I have to be honest with you, completely clear and honest with you. A few years ago, I read an awesome book by uh, my favorite, one of my favorite preachers. You all know his name. His name's Timothy Keller. And he wrote a book based on this parable. And the book he titled it is called The Prodigal God. Well, as I said, I must be honest, after reading that book, and I, I, I did not, I, 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 I want to promise you, I did not reread it this week and, and grab some notes out of it, but I have a kind of a photographic memory about certain things, and an awful lot of what is in here today is reminiscent of what he said in that book because it was brilliant. Um, his insights are so good and so true on this parable, and he also mentions that in his ministry, the life of his ministry, this parable has shaped his life and his ministry. And so you'll, you'll know that in your Bibles it says the prodigal son, and he titled it the prodigal God, prodigal, prodigal God pardon me, so who am I to come up with a new title? Well, okay, well, I, I believe it's actually for uh, what I want to show us today, the best title is The Lost Sons. And, and I take that from the first verse that we read. In 1511 it says this, And he, Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. So again, Jesus has come back to this man, which... Pharisees are, okay, that, that could be me that he's talking about. Um, this is actually the father, which we will get to. But he has these two sons. So Jesus actually gives us the title for this, I believe. It's about two sons. And I'm suggesting they are both lost sons. So like the previous two parables, Jesus is using this contrast and comparison between two men, and in this case, between two brothers. And again, probably because of the prodigal son title, this story has almost entirely rested on the antics of the wayward son, right? The younger son. And, it, and it's natural when you think about it. We all want to hear sermons that are about us, right? uh, about those of us, and many of us have gone down this route. I got the t-shirt, you know, who have been a little bit of a rebel, you know, let the hair grow long, you know, rebelled against mom and dad, went and did a few things. Okay, it's shorter now. That was years ago. But we've rebelled, right? And so we love the sermon that focuses on the younger son because, hey, oh, it's amazing. We can go out and we can live our lives however we want, apparently, and God will love us no matter what. I can hear the strings of the music crescendoing right now, right? This, is, this just makes for a great story. Well, the truth is, however, I, I don't believe that's what Jesus has in mind at all. What he has intended here in this parable is not intended to be actually heartwarming. I, I, I mean, in the end, it should be to us. It should really warm our hearts. But I don't think that's his intention at the beginning here. And in fact, as, I, as we will see, at every change of scene and plot twist, those listening to Jesus would be getting angrier and angrier with him. I mean, even the tax collectors and the sinners who would identify with the younger brother are going to have some questions here. They're going to have some questions. So this is the last of the three parables, and Jesus is going to give them and us, I believe, his most poignant lesson on who we truly are before, listen, a holy, 
a righteous, and yes, a merciful, compassionate, and loving God. In this incredible parable, he wants us to see this. In this story and in life, really, there are essentially two groups of people caught in two kinds of lostness. They're, they're opposing, they're different, but they're both lostness. And there's good news. There's one way home. There's just one way home. And God has provided that perfect way home. So we begin with these two groups of people, the tax collectors on the one hand and sinners, and the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus compares the two in this parable of two sons. And so obviously the tax collectors and sinners, they're playing the part of the younger son. And then the, they, are the, they, are, they have committed what, what the other group clearly believes are, are these grievous sins. I mean, the sins are so bad that they actually don't deserve to be allowed to come home, and they don't deserve even to be saved in their minds. The Pharisees and the scribes, of course, are, they play the role of the elder son in this parable. They're the good boys, of course, right, who've, who've done everything perfectly, apparently. Uh, they've lived a clean life, uh, no out, at least no outward sin that when one can see. They've attended church regularly, synagogue, of course, for them. They've tithed. They've obeyed mom and dad. Well, we'll see. Number one, let's look at the younger son. I'll put verse 12 on screen for us. And the younger of them said to his father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So this, this is 2,000 years out for you and I from the context of that day, that place, what was going on there. But from the very beginning of this parable, like he's been doing for years now uh, with the Pharisees and scribes, uh, he shocks and angers the, listen, the elder son type, those who are playing this role, right? The Pharisees and scribes. He shocks them right away. Uh, the cultural context is important to understand. And, and in a, a proper Jewish family, it works something like this. The father's wealth his possessions, essentially, were his property. Primarily his land and his livestock. The way that inheritance also worked in that day was pretty simple. When the father died, that's an important point, two-thirds of the estate would go to the elder son, the eldest son, and one-third to the younger. But again, as I state, that would be upon the death of the father that that would happen. So what we have here is something that the listeners in that day would have found very strange. But in particular, the Pharisees and the scribes would have been completely outraged. This would have been like, this is crazy. This is wrong, Jesus. Where are you going with this? So first, the younger son, look, in their mind, looks at it this way. He demands his inheritance now. <laughs> Unheard of, and quite frankly, in that day, the standard answer would be, no, and by the way, get out. You're no longer my son. This was so unheard of. The only response that a Jewish father in that day would give to a son like that would be, what did you just ask me for? No. Leave. In their minds, it would be a little bit like saying to your father, Father, I wish actually, in fact, that you were dead so that I could have what's coming to me now, as if when you were dead. Secondly, and this would have completely blown the lid off their anger, the father does what in this story? He doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't respond in the way that they believe he should. 
he gives the younger son exactly what, it's not just ask, demands of his father. But also remember those key words. Remember these key words, because we'll get to them in the end. Between them. So we've already read the narrative, and we know what happens, right? We know what happens. You know the story. It's so predictable, isn't it? The younger son packs up his bags, right? Heads off to downtown Vancouver from the family ranch up by a 100-mile house, and immediately he moves to the downtown east side where there's lots of parties and drugs and people living whatever way they want, right? And he just, it's just party on. He's living the high life. Um, it, later on, we find out that that's wine, women, and song in his life. I mean, the elder son accuses him of wasting his money on prostitutes. Uh, it actually says in the text that he squandered his property in reckless living. His life is a train wreck. Really quickly, it seems like he, he takes his wealth, what he's been given by his father, and he blows it all. And then things go from bad to worse. After he's lost it all, we read in the text that a famine breaks out. Or maybe a virus? But in this story, a famine breaks out. So he's not only broke, now he's starving. He's starving. And so he, will, he may be foolish, but he, he, he tries to show that he's really no dummy, so he gets a job feeding pigs, right? And even what they're eating is starting to look good. And so again, Jesus is, keeps throwing into this story, into this parable, things that are just not going to sit well with the elder types, the elder sons. Pigs, unclean animals, reckless living, squandered life. Oh, dear. Now, I want us just to imagine at this point in the story that as the elder son types that are listening to Jesus tell about the younger son's woes, as, he, as they hear this, they're kind of like saying, right. I mean, he's getting what he deserves. This is what happens when you disrespect your father, right? You treat your father that way. And this is what happens when you take everything that you've been given, all the blessings you've been given, and you waste them on sinful living. So next we read some encouraging words, however, sort of. Verse 17 says this, But when he, the younger son, came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I, I've always, whenever reading that parable, loved those words, came to his senses. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, uh, but I've had a few points in my life where I, was, I came to my senses. You know, you start going down a certain road, a certain path, and it's not necessarily a train wreck or reckless living in the same sense as what we're hearing, but it, it isn't good. And then you come to your senses. And you think, well, well okay, that, that, that didn't work out. Let's try this. And so this, this is positive on one level. It's a first good step for anyone who's living like that, especially like that, is to come to your senses. Before your life becomes a complete train wreck, come to your senses. So this, listen, this is interesting. He devises a plan. Again, this is encouraging, but look what he does. He rehearses his apology. He actually, the text shows us that he's kind of rehearsing, okay, I know when I get to see my father, I know what I'm going to have to do. I'm going to have to say this. Verses 18, 19, this is his rehearsal where he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
a good start, right? I mean, if you're a dad, you'd be like, mm-hmm, keep going, right? Then he says, treat me as one of your hired servants. So this I, it sounds good so far. He's going to confess to being foolish. He's going to beg his father to forgive him his sins. Not exactly. Not exactly. What he's actually planning to do is ask his father to hire him, to pay him a wage just like his other hired servants, most of whom who don't live on the property but live in town. And, and the idea would be, and it would, again, to the elder-type brothers, it would be like, well, yeah, maybe what he's wanting to do is, and this is as part of custom, maybe what he's thinking he's doing, he would earn some money, and he would repay his father, and frankly, his elder brother. Maybe that's what he's going to be up to. So that's what he does. He heads home, and interestingly in the story, before he can even begin his apology, his pitch, I want to call it, we read this in verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Okay, that's, that's encouraging. For all of us wayward sons and daughters, younger sons, that's encouraging. Because this, this, is, this is our Heavenly Father we're speaking about here. This is how He receives us. We've already learned that in the previous two parables, that Jesus receives sinners. The elder types didn't really like that. So this is, this is radical love unconditional love being displayed by the Father in this story. On the other hand, again, Jesus knew full well how the elder types, the religious Pharisees and scribes, would think of this. They'd be like, come on, come on. No faithful Jewish father would ever behave this way. Ever. Compassion for, for this type of person, this, this kind of son? Seriously, after all his sins against him, his family, his father and God, unforgivable. Oh, and run? Like lift up your tunic and actually be seen running? A Jewish father would, would never lower himself to something like that. Embrace him? Kiss him? It's unheard of. But this is the parable. This is the picture that Jesus is giving to them, is giving to you and I, of the Father. So here's the point that Jesus is making, and I hope they saw. I hope they did, but I certainly hope we see. Moralistic, self-righteous, religious people, people like the elder sons, are actually put off by Jesus and his forgiveness and his grace. It, it, it seems... It seems unfair to them. On the other hand, those who are deemed the socially immoral and obviously sinful are attracted to Jesus, right? So now look at the response of the younger son. Remember, he had rehearsed this. He'd rehearsed this apology before he got there. But then in verse 21, after the father had behaved this way towards him, it says, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called 
your son. You notice what he dropped? He dropped the hired servant petition, didn't he? This is repentance. This is, this is a, an amazing response. He's shocked, actually, in the opposite way to the moralistic elder brother types. His heart is softened and warmed at the same time by the compassion, the forgiveness, and the love of the father. Then the story goes on, and the father shows him even more love than, than he could ever possibly imagine, which is going to raise the ire, of course, of the elder types, right? The, the, the father virtually ignores his, his confession. He's trying to you know, give his confession to his father, and his father says, uh-huh. And at the same time, he's calling out to the servants, and, and he's, he's yelling to them, going, get my robe, the best robe I have, put it on him. Get, get, a, get a ring and put it on him. Get shoes for his feet. <laughs> Can you imagine the shock of this young man? And, and, and quite frankly, the warming of his heart. And I mean, I mean he, he lived in the home with this man. Is this the way this man always was towards his sons? Yes. Yes. This is the father we're talking about. He was always that way. But do you notice something else? There's something odd missing here. And again, the elder types are going to pick up on this. They're going to pick up on this. Please note, not only does the father do these unthinkable things, but the first thing he doesn't tell his youngest son is, oh, by the way, before I put my robe on you, my ring and my shoes on you, go have a shower, would you? Clean yourself up first. Friends, for, for you and I here today, um, th this, is, this is the gospel that we're hearing and seeing here. It's, it's not written in the story, but it's true. God doesn't expect us to do any cleaning up of ourselves before we come to him. And he doesn't also want us to feel dirty. He wants us to feel forgiven. Forgiven. So finally, he orders his servants to get the family's prized fatted calf. Oh, this is, this is going from bad to worse, friends. The most expensive animal that they have. And to kill it and start up the barbecue, invite the whole neighborhood, the whole village, to the grandest celebration of all time. And his reason in verse 24 is this. For this, this, my son, was dead. And is alive again. He was lost, and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Remember the last two parables? The lost sheep, the lost coin. There was rejoicing in the neighborhood, and there was increased joy in heaven when one sinner repented. Number two, it's time to look at the lost elder son. So it's a wonderful story so far if, if you identify with the younger son, right? It's an awesome story if you identify with him. Well, next we learn that the elder son is doing what he always does. The story tells us that he's out in the field working the family business, right? He's doing the work that he's supposed to be doing. He's working the farm like a good son. He hears the sound of this great party that's going on, and he asks the servant, as he's coming back to the, the main home, the homestead, he's like, what is going on here? Like, the whole village is here. It's an amazing party. What's going on? 
servant says to him, your brother has come. Oh, that's good news, right? And your father has killed the fatted calf. Oh, man, just to see this picture unfold. Because he has received him back safe and sound. Well, the go again, the story tells us this completely enrages the elder son, which all of the elder son types, the Pharisees and scribes who are listening, would definitely identify with. They'd be like, at this point in the story, they'd be going, okay, Jesus, it's the first thing in the story that really makes sense, right? Hopefully some of them have had their hearts softened a bit. Hopefully some of them are beginning to get this. Hopefully some of us, uh, of us are. So despite his anger, the father comes out from the party, and the word in the ESV is entreats him. It, it's, it's a little bit like saying he pleads with him. Son, son, you're my son. Come to the party. Come on. This is awesome. But the elder son responds with these words, beginning in verse 29. Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Okay, so if, if the elder types, the Pharisees and scribes, thought the younger son was being disrespectful of the father, what's this? Jesus is betraying, portraying them and their hearts and their attitude in this story of this elder son. The, the, using the word in the, in the Greek, the, it's dramatic. It's very, look you, it's very dramatic and disrespectful. And then here it is, elder son self-justification or daughter. He basically says, look, come on. I have served you, never disobeyed you. That's probably a stretch. <laughs> and despite all my good behavior, doing all the right things, all these years, nothing from you. No acknowledgement of my righteous superiority over... That's my interpretation of his behavior. So you see it, right? It's not just the disrespect of the father that's on display here. It's this son, son's sense of moral superiority over, listen, over, listen, both the younger son and the father. His judgment of the, the younger son, his brother, it, that's clear. That's been out, that, that's expected. But he's also judging his father, his wisdom. In his mind, both the younger son and, and I should say, the, both the younger son and elder son are guilty of many things, but most significantly, they are both guilty of wanting this. And it's seen mostly in the elder son, but we saw it earlier in the younger son. They basically wanted his possessions, his wealth, but not him. That's probably the saddest point in the story. But that brings us to point number three. Despite that, Despite both 
treating him that way, we see the response of point number three, the loving father. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. Come on. It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is, is alive. He was lost and is found. So time doesn't permit us to go too deeply here. I guess in one sense it does. We don't have communion today, and you're sitting there having a coffee, and we're sitting here. We could go on longer, but really. Uh, let me just look at, uh, help you with this. Jesus uses the word Father to describe his heavenly Father 165 times in the Gospels. And, and if you go through this particular parable, many, many times in this parable he talks about the Father and also with the words he and the man who had two sons. It's a challenging word for some in our culture today, and we've been over this for, before, but simply, again, I, I have to highlight this and point this out to us because it's important. God is revealed to us in Scripture as our Father, as our good and better and, listen, perfect patriarch. That's the model that's on display here. In this parable, the kind of father that every man is supposed to be like. And so men, please take notice. We're the reason why that word has become a bad word in our culture today. But it's not. It's about our Heavenly Father, the good and better and perfect patriarch. So the loving Father in this parable is our Heavenly Father. And look, He is merciful and forgiving and entreating to both the immoral and the moralistic, <laughs> the younger and the elder. Two quick observations I want to leave with you at this point before we get to the big idea in this parable. And this will be part of our conclusion. So first, look at this, these final verses again with me. I want you to look at it. Do you see the Father's words? I mean, he says to the elder son, all that is mine is yours. But do you remember earlier? He divided his wealth, his property and possessions, between them both. Legally speaking in that culture at that time, for him to have done what he did with the younger son would require him to have essentially said, okay, all of this is yours, elder son. Effectively right now. But the good elder son type, of course, is like, well, I'll be good until you, you die. Friends, what enraged the elder son so much was that the father was spending his wealth, his possessions, his fatted calf on the younger brother. And at the same time, he was showing the elder brother exactly what he should have been doing as the elder brother. He should have, as the elder brother, gone looking for his younger brother on the downtown east side of Vancouver. He should have been gone looking for him to rescue his brother. But he didn't. He, he should have been the one who was so excited when his brother shows up out of the blue, looking rather haggard after wasting his life away like he did, and he should have been the one that said, Dad, it's time for a party. My brother's home. But he didn't. He didn't. 
No, he represents every elder son type who is less than happy when a real sinner, someone who has been so sinful that redemption or forgiveness should never be granted to, he represents anyone, you or me, who has a heart like that. That's something for us to allow the Holy Spirit to search all of our hearts on today and throughout this week. Secondly, and I believe this is the most beautiful underlying meaning to this whole story. The ending of the story is kind of like a cliffhanger, isn't it? It's like, it's almost like to be continued, right? Uh, last week on the prodigal. You know, like, the, how does it end? Does the, does, the, does the elder son come in? Repent and come in to the party? We don't know. We don't actually get the answer. We don't see what happens to this elder son at all. So remember the one thing, the one telling the younger sons and the elder sons this story is who? Well, it's Jesus himself who's telling this story, right? In the flesh. And the point of this story, friends, the powerful point of this parable is that they and we not only have a loving father, we also have a different and better and perfect elder brother. Jesus has just laid it out for these Pharisees and these scribes and the tax collectors and sinners for you and for me here today exactly what they look like, what their hearts look like, and particularly the Pharisees who are stuck in their religious, self-righteous, moralistic minds, mindset, absolutely alienated from the grace and heart of the Father. But Jesus is not. Jesus is the true elder brother. You know the gospel. You know the story of his life. Unlike this elder brother, Jesus came to earth and truly did obey the Father in everything. He never debated, disobeyed his orders, even to the cross. He truly has the right to all that the Father owns. And yet, and yet the truth is, he came, he left the heavenly places, the Father's side, came here in search of you and in search of me. And yet, in doing that, he found us. Some of us in our mess, some of us in our moralistic self-righteousness, and his desire from that point is, from this point on, is to, like the lost sheep, carry us home on his shoulders. And he wants to give us his robe, his ring, his place, his wealth, all at his own expense. He wants to give that all to you and I here today. Let's let that encourage our hearts. But also, as you pray over this parable and you ask yourself, who was I in this parable? Who maybe am I today? Allow the Holy Spirit to transform you, renew you, and give you real hope in this life today. Pray with me, would you?